Welcome to episode 126 of Kentucky History and Haunts. I'm your host, Jesse Bartholomew, and I'm switching gears a bit this week. I've been talking about some pretty obscure stories lately that don't involve famous or infamous characters or events. I like telling these stories that have gotten somewhat lost to time that you won't hear about on other podcasts or read about in books. Just because they weren't famous doesn't mean they aren't a part of Kentucky history. But a while back, I mentioned I'd like to start a series on Kentucky governors. I decided pretty early on I won't be covering all of them. For one thing, we've had over 60 of them. And to be honest, some of their stories are pretty cut and dry. Came from a prominent family, went to law school, got into politics early, and stayed there their entire lives. But that's not to say there aren't exceptions. So I'm going to pick and choose the ones I find most interesting. And they might not always be in chronological order, but I did think it would be good to start with the very first governor of Kentucky, Isaac Shelby. One more thing before I get started, and it's that I want to preface this episode and any other episode like it that involves the biography of an early Kentucky founder or statesman. A lot of their stories are very similar. War heroes did great things for their community, established democracies, killed Native Americans, stole land, owned slaves. Those are the facts. I have opinions about all of it, but this podcast was not really designed for me to perpetuate or interject my own opinions into history. I'm just here to tell the stories. But I love Kentucky. I appreciate the good things men like Isaac Shelby did, like promote education and public welfare. But it was almost always at the expense of a minority, and I'm not naive about that. To me, it's a false dichotomy that you have to only feel one way about it. I think it's possible to be grateful to be a Kentuckian and to have the freedoms I do while being able to acknowledge and reflect on the fact that it was at the expense of others and that the process of getting to where we are today came with consequences that certain groups of people are still facing generationally today. If anyone would ever like to discuss what I just said privately, I would be happy to as long as we can do it like adults. I just wanted to mention this today because When I gloss over parts of the story about slaughtering Native Americans or trading slaves, I'm not being insensitive, and I do think those things are important, but I'm just here to tell a story. Maybe this whole spiel was unnecessary, but I hope some of you can understand where I'm coming from and why I felt the need to say it. Way back in 1735... Evan and Letitia Shelby immigrated from Wales to the British colony of Maryland near Hagerstown. Fifteen years later, Letitia gave birth to a son named Isaac Shelby on December 11, 1750. Isaac was educated at the local schools in the colony. He worked on his dad's plantation, and on the side, he learned how to survey land. He was even appointed deputy sheriff of Frederick County in 1768 when he was 18. But Shelby's parents fell on hard times after their fur business tanked and their house caught on fire. So in 1770, they headed south to the area where Bristol, Tennessee is now. They built a fort and a trading post, and not long after moving south, 
Isaac and his dad participated in Lord Dunmore's war. This was fall of 1774. Isaac was commissioned as a lieutenant in the Virginia militia, and he was second in command of his father's Fincastle County Company. It's kind of the same old story that you hear over and over in this situation. Uh, the Virginia colonists had put these treaties in place with the Native American tribes. In this case, it was the Mingo and the Shawnee. And it was over this region in the Appalachian area south of the Ohio River. Uh, if you look up Lord Dunmore's War, you can see exactly where this was. Um, but they had, had these treaties, but of course, there was a lot of tension. So they ended up fighting. And the colonists overpowered the Native Americans pretty swiftly. This was Isaac's first taste of the military life. It had been a success. They erected Fort Blair on the site of the Battle of Point Pleasant. And they stayed there for several months until July 1775, when Lord Dunmore thought, you know what? I think those rebels talking about revolution might come try to take this fort since its location is so uh, useful. So he actually had them burn the fort down. Now, I mentioned earlier that Shelby did some surveying work on the side when he was younger. He picked that back up after they burned Fort Blair. He was a surveyor for the Transylvania Company, which bought a ton of land from the Cherokee tribe in what's now Kentucky. Uh, but this purchase would go on to be invalidated by the governor of Virginia. But that's what he was up to for a little while, around the time of the beginning of the Revolutionary War. He had some sort of illness in the summer of 76 and went home to Virginia to recover. And then once he did, he was appointed captain of a company of Minutemen. So earlier, he had been in the mil military serving the British, fighting Native Americans. Now he was a captain of a colonial militia. The Minutemen were typically a younger group able to be more mobile, to take off for battle on a minute's notice, hence the name. Um, and they tended to be, you know, very, very much on the front lines, and they were very well respected and highly regarded. So he would be a captain of one company of Minutemen. And then by 1777, he was assigned a role where he was in charge of securing provisions for the army on the frontier. And he did something similar for the Continental Army in 1778, in 79. Also in 79, he was elected to the Virginia House of Delegates, representing Washington County. A few months after that, he was commissioned by Governor Thomas Jefferson to escort a group of commissioners to establish a frontier boundary between Virginia and North Carolina. And this was a very appropriate assignment for him at that point. He'd done some time in the military, he was good in the wilderness, and he had a background in surveying. So it was right up his alley. They took off towards that North Carolina boundary and everywhere he went, I think people must have just really jived with him. Um, he must have been very charismatic because not long after he gets to North Carolina, the governor is like, hey, you wanna be magistrate of one of our new counties? And he's like, of course I do. So Isaac became magistrate of Sullivan County in North Carolina. And then he also became colonel of the Sullivan County Regiment.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So he had really started establishing himself in North Carolina, but one thing you should know about Isaac Shelby is that he cannot seem to stay in one place for long. There's just too much going on. So he headed back to Kentucky Territory, and then in 1780, he found out that the colonists were defeated in Charleston, and the British were headed for his beloved North Carolina. So he went back to North Carolina, rounded up 300 militiamen, and joined General McDowell at Cherokee Ford in South Carolina. So at this point, they were going on the offense, trying to keep the British out of North Carolina. And here's how that went down. Quote, on the morning of July 31st, 1780, he surrounded the British stronghold at Thickety Fort on the Pecolet River with 600 men. He immediately demanded a surrender, but the British refused. Shelby brought his men within musket range and again demanded surrender. Though the fort likely would have withstood the attack, the British commander lost his nerve and capitulated. Without firing a shot, Shelby's men captured 94 prisoners. I don't want to spend too much time on the details of all the battles and skirmishes he was involved in, but suffice it to say, Isaac Shelby was a good leader and he was clever, and to me, he seemed somewhat fearless. And so that earned him loads of respect. And while I don't want to get into detail about all the battles, there is one in particular that kind of made him a standout militiaman. So we'll talk about the Battle of King's Mountain. Shelby had teamed up with another group led by Lieutenant Elijah Clark. And their main enemy at the time was this British Major Patrick Ferguson. Shelby and Clark were headed towards a British fort in South Carolina to hunt down this Major Ferguson, but then they heard there was a bad loss at the Battle of Camden, so they retreated over the Appalachian Mountains back into North Carolina. And that made British Major Ferguson feel pretty good. So he thought he would go on the offense and send a paroled prisoner across the mountains to basically taunt Shelby and Clark and to tell them to back off once and for all, or he was just gonna come at them full force. And doing this only fueled Isaac Shelby's fire. He was like, oh no, you cannot come at me like that. So Shelby immediately started planning a raid with the help of John Sevier, Sevier, sorry. Uh, they rounded up close to 500 men. They brought in William Campbell with an extra 400 men from Washington County, Virginia and they got an extra 160 men from other counties in North Carolina, strength in numbers. All these different groups met up at Sycamore Shoals in September of 1780, and once they get there, even more guys show up. They got another 350 from Surrey and Wilkes counties. So we're talking like over 1,500 men for sure. And they started off towards a place called King's Mountain, where Ferguson was camped out. 
and Ferguson was hell-bent on staying at Kings Mountain. It was his. The Battle of Kings Mountain started on October 7, 1780, and it did not go well for British Major Patrick Ferguson. He made an attempt to retreat, but the colonists weren't having it. They were under clear orders to kill Ferguson, and kill Ferguson they did. Quote, Simultaneous shots broke both Ferguson's arms, fatally pierced his skull, and knocked him from his mount. Seeing their commander dead, the remaining British soldiers waved white flags of surrender. Isaac Shelby played a huge part in the success of this battle, and that is how he got the nickname Old King's Mountain. Shelby was still out doing military stuff when in 1781 he was elected to the House of Commons of the North Carolina General Assembly. He put in a request for a temporary leave from the army so he could participate in the winter 1781 session, which he did. He was re-elected the following year and attended the April session, but Kentucky was calling his name. In 1783, he was commissioned to survey preemption claims of soldiers along the Cumberland River. Later that year, he settled in Boonesboro and married Susanna Hart, his childhood sweetheart, with whom he had 11 children. Sarah, their oldest daughter, married Dr. Ephraim McDowell. Ephraim McDowell was one of the first episodes I ever did on the podcast, so if you want to hear that crazy story, scroll all the way back to episode three. Shelby's youngest daughter, Letitia, named after Shelby's mom, married future Kentucky Secretary of State Charles Stewart Todd. I'm going to try to remember to post a picture of him on social media, but if I forget, please look up Charles Stewart Todd's Wikipedia page. I really hope that's how he wore his hair in real life. So like I said, at that point, the Shelby family was in Boonesboro, which has come up a lot on the show. But in case you're not familiar, the town sits on the Kentucky River, sort of between Lexington and Richmond, a little bit to the east. After living in Boonesboro for a short time, the Shelbys moved to Lincoln County, near Knob Lick. When I first read that, that they were near Knob Lick, I got a little confused. Um, <laughs> because it's such a beautiful name, we have a lot of Knob Licks in Kentucky. And I was thinking it would be down more by Mammoth Cave. But I looked at the map, and there's a Knob Lick Cemetery closer to Boonesboro and Richmond and kind of close to Lincoln County. So I'm thinking it was more like that area. And I know that, like, he ended up settling in Lincoln County. So it's not way down south, which was the Knob Lick I knew of. Anyway, they moved there because Shelby was given some land as a reward for all the good stuff he'd done for the military in, like, three different states. So around that time, he was also named one of the first trustees of Transylvania Seminary, which is now Transylvania University, which we talked about recently on the Secret Society episode. And then in 1787, Shelby founded a society of his own with a name that I love so much called the Kentucky Society for the Promotion of Useful Knowledge. What's really confusing Actually, just the whole thing is confusing. We don't seem to have that much information about what this group was. It's one of the more difficult things I've researched with regard to Kentucky history. So if you do a search on that name, Kentucky Society for the Promotion of Useful Knowledge, you get a bunch of hits on the Danville Political Club, or just the Political Club. And most of those sites will tell you that that group formed in 1786. 
so the timing adds up. But it's, it's strange because in the Wikipedia page on the Danville Political Club, there is no mention of Isaac Shelby in the list of its founding members. It says, quote, The existence of the club may never have been known if not for the discovery made by Thomas Speed II in 1878. Speed, the grandson of the club's secretary, Thomas Speed, discovered a bundle of papers labeled political club papers while cleaning out his grandfather's desk. The elder Thomas Speed had kept meticulous notes of the club's activities throughout its existence, though some were scribbled on bits of newspapers and old letters. Speed's grandson published the documents through the Filson Historical Society in 1894. So, like I said, if you look at a list of founding members of the Danville Political Club, it's a lot of prominent men, a lot of people who would have run in the same circles as Isaac Shelby, but his name is not on the list. So it's this weird thing where if you try to research Isaac Shelby's group, you really don't get any information at all. And there are a couple websites where they say that the two groups were in close affiliation with one another, but it's very hard to distinguish like what Isaac Shelby's group actually was. So if anyone knows more about this and would like to offer some clarity, I'd love to hear it. But also, I am going to get a copy of the Danville Political Club publication that Mr. Speed published so I can do an episode on it because I did read an overview, like the table of contents, and it's very entertaining. Anyway, around this time, mid to late 1780s, Shelby was thinking to himself, Kentucky should really be its own state. Virginia's too big. We're all the way over here doing our own thing. So he attended conventions working towards a constitution for Kentucky. This was while a man named James Wilkinson was trying to align the Kentucky territory with the Spanish. Shelby was not having that. And finally, in 1792, Shelby was a delegate to the final convention that framed the first Kentucky constitution. We do not know for a fact if Isaac Shelby really had aspirations to be governor of Kentucky, but he was elected unanimously on May 17, 1791. I think that's kind of neat to point out. He was elected governor to a state that didn't actually become a state until over a year later. I don't know, maybe that's how it always happened when a new state was formed, but it just seemed like everybody loved and believed in Isaac Shelby and were very confident in his ability to lead. Quote, though not actively partisan, he identified with the Democratic-Republicans. Much of his term was devoted to establishing laws, military divisions, and a tax structure. Something that took up a lot of his focus that first term was securing what he now believed to be his land from Native Americans. He desperately needed more federal aid for this. The Secretary of War was telling him not to go there, not to fight the Native Americans. State militiamen, under federal regulation, were only allowed to serve 30 days at a time, and Kentuckians were becoming highly suspicious that the British were actually giving supplies and aid to the local tribes. Shelby's younger brother Evan was killed in an attack by Native Americans in the early 1790s, so that certainly didn't soften Shelby's views. 
So that was one of his big concerns. He was also very worried about the Mississippi River because the Spanish had closed the port of New Orleans to Americans and Kentuckians were heavily reliant on that trade route from the Ohio to the Mississippi. And getting products like hemp, flour, and tobacco out any other way was so expensive it didn't make sense. So issues with the British, the natives, and the Spanish. We did okay with the French, though. Uh, there was kind of a close call in 1793 when a French ambassador came to Kentucky and met with Isaac Shelby, and then Secretary of State Thomas Jefferson wrote to Shelby basically to make sure that he wasn't scheming with this ambassador or making any promises to help him or whatever because they were in the process of negotiating with the Spanish to open those trade routes back up, and any sort of alliance with the French could have been a major deterrence to those negotiations. The funny thing is, the letter Jefferson sent wasn't received by Shelby until after he met with the ambassador, but basically his response was, look, I'm not stupid. I'm not going to like almost commit treason just because I like this French guy. They suspected that Shelby may have helped the French anyway, so Jefferson actually issued basically a warrant for the arrest of any French agents in Kentucky, and he encouraged Shelby to go out and find them. And Shelby was like, yeah, I'm not going to do that. Shelby wrote, quote, I shall upon all occasions be averse to the exercise of any power which I do not consider myself as being clearly and explicitly invested with, much less would I assume power to exercise it against men whom I consider as friends and brethren in favor of a man whom I view as an enemy and a tyrant, the King of Spain. I shall also feel but little inclination to take an active part in punishing or restraining any of my fellow citizens for a supposed intention only to gratify or remove the fears of the ministers of a foreign prince who openly withholds from us an invaluable right, navigation of the Mississippi, and who secretly instigates against us a most savage and cruel enemy. So things were a little tense here uh, about all this. But then two months later, the French ambassador went back to France. Uh, the French basically ceased operations in Kentucky. Jefferson was replaced by Edmund Randolph. And President George Washington negotiated a trade agreement for the Mississippi with the Spanish. And all was well in the world, kind of, for a minute. Shelby's term as governor came to an end in 1796. His approval rating was quite high, from what I understand. He retired to his Lincoln County estate, which he called Traveler's Rest, and he was just a farmer for the next 15 years. Then in 1812, there was some tension between the U.S., France, and Great Britain, and a man named Gabriel Slaughter was running for governor of Kentucky. Slaughter really wanted to be governor. So when rumors started circulating that Isaac Shelby was going to run again after stepping away from politics for 15 years, he was concerned. So he went to visit Shelby at his estate, where Shelby assured him he was not planning to campaign unless there was some sort of crazy emergency and he felt it absolutely necessary. Well, surprise, we did a war. So that was emergency enough for Isaac Shelby to throw his hat in the ring. And exactly one month after the commencement of the War of 1812, and less than a month before the election, Shelby announced he was going to run for governor. Again. He had a message printed in the Kentucky Gazette in July that read, 
quote, having been solicited by many of my fellow citizens to serve as the next chief magistrate of this state if elected, and having expressed my willingness to do so in the event of war being declared and believing that the best interests, perhaps the salvation of the beloved country is now staked upon the conflict of our old inveterate foe, I deem it my duty to say that if elected, I will cheerfully serve my country. It does make me almost feel a little bad for Slaughter because he had military experience as well and he was a, a pretty well-respected guy and he'd, he'd been in politics some. So he actually did end up becoming governor later, but uh, a bummer at the time for him. Those who supported Slaughter for governor were quick to point out that Isaac Shelby was in his twilight years. And remember, you know, this is the 1700s or, you know, early 1800s. So being in your 60s was ancient and Shelby was 62. Uh, they called him Old Daddy Shelby. I want to read some excerpts from a letter that I found in the paper around this time when Shelby announced he's running. And some of Slaughter's supporters were very outspoken about it. Uh, this isn't the whole thing because some of it was too blurry to read, but I've got bits and pieces of it. Quote, what still more strengthens the supposition is that Colonel Shelby is constantly surrounded by gentlemen of that description, who, after having damned our Jefferson, Madison, and the whole people with every proceeding of our government into the deepest abyss, now gasp for the loaves and fishes of that very administration, which with the preceding breath they execrated. To be sure, old daddy Shelby must once more at his dotage be tickled forth into the governorship to help his Tory lineage to some handsome appointment or other, after which they will consent to let the old man go to sleep with his fathers. Colonel Shelby, since he left his governorship about 16 years ago, through which, by the way, he went snugly enough under the wings of his able secretary, has made the sublime art of making money his principal study and practice. Surely a man who will get plantations with negroes and cash for himself and a numerous offspring who will oversee a herd of slaves to fill the market with hemp, corn, flour, whiskey, cider, and cider royal, who will at all times buy as cheap and sell as dear as possible, who is careful to receive every grain of rent corn from numerous needy tenants and besides look sharp that timber, fences, houses, etc., suffer no detriment by them, a man who will succeed in these things, as Colonel Shelby has done, has certainly neither inclination nor leisure left to profit by the beams of midnight lamp in the study of geography, ancient and modern history, and all that extensive, extensive range of science which form the intelligent statesman. So that's a very different portrayal of Shelby than anything we've heard so far, and that is that in the time he was away from politics, he was busy running his plantation, ordering slaves around, buying low and selling high, charging his tenant farmers rent, that he didn't have any spare time to brush up on the fields of study that politicians should be familiar with. He goes on to say that all the time Shelby's been spending on the farm, Slaughter has been in the legislature, climbing the political ranks and serving his people. The writer even mentions Shelby's military service and basically says, yeah, he was brave, but you had to be brave. Everyone was brave. Everyone that served was a hero. Quote, that Colonel Shelby is brave, I do not doubt. But who is not? 
Has he stood a hotter fire than our brave boys at Tippecanoe? To be brave is almost a hereditary virtue in America in general, and of the long knife in particular. But the whole continent of North and South America would not furnish states enough if we wanted to make every brave soldier a governor. Anyway, uh, Shelby was unbothered by this. He felt good about things. He thought he might win by 10,000 votes. He won by over 17,000. And his second term was largely devoted to the War of 1812. He appointed William Henry Harrison commander of the Kentucky militia, even though it was against the rules since Harrison was not Kentucky born. Uh, that turned out to be a good move. Harrison was kind of a big deal. He became the ninth president of the United States, no doubt thanks in small part to the promotion from Isaac Shelby. Shelby also altered the militia law about age requirements to join the military so more people were eligible. So many people volunteered after that that they had to start turning people away. He would write messages to the public in the Gazette like this one. Kentuckians, ever preeminent for their patriotism, bravery, and good conduct, will, I am persuaded on this occasion, give to the world a new evidence of their love for their country and a determination at every hazard to rescue their fellow men from murders and devastations of a cruel and barbarous enemy. And this one a couple months later. To comply with the requisites of General Harrison, a draft might have been enforced. But believing as I do that the ardor and patriotism of my countrymen has not been abated, and that they have waited with impatience a fair opportunity of avenging the blood of their butchered friends, I have appointed the 31st day of August next at Newport for a general rendezvous of Kentucky Volunteers. I will meet you there in person, and I will lead you to the field of battle and share with you the dangers and honors of the campaign. Our services will not be required more than 60 days after we reach headquarters. Shelby stayed in close communication with Harrison throughout the war. They both shared the sentiment that they were not getting much help from the federal government, so a lot of times they had to take things into their own hands. And it's my understanding that whatever Harrison asked for, Shelby granted or provided. Quote, on July 30th, 1813, General Harrison again wrote Shelby requesting volunteers, and this time he asked that Shelby lead them personally. Shelby raised a force of 3,500 volunteers, double the number Harrison requested. Future Governor John J. Crittenden served as Shelby's aide-de-camp. Now a major general, Shelby led the volunteers to join Harrison in a campaign that culminated in the American victory at the Battle of the Thames. So that was the response to Shelby's letter in the paper. He ended up with 3,500 people. In Harrison's report of the battle to Secretary of War John Armstrong Jr., he said, quote, I am at a loss to how to mention the service of Governor Shelby, being convinced that no eulogism of mine can reach his merit. In 1817, Shelby received the thanks of Congress and was awarded the Congressional Gold Medal for his service in the war. Friends of Shelby suggested he run for vice president, but Shelby quickly and emphatically declined. Shelby's second term ended in 1816, and after that, President Monroe tried to recruit him to be his Secretary of War, 
And Isaac Shelby said, you know what? I'm like 65 years old. I've done enough war. I've done enough politicking. I'm going to go raise some sheep. That's not a direct quote. I don't know what he said in response, but I do know that he said no. He was, he was done with all that. So he did leave in pretty good standing with other politicians and with the public. Um, I found this in the Kentucky Gazette from 1816. And just so you guys know, when you go that far back in newspaper archives, it's very hit or miss what you get because so much of it is faded. The newspaper print was very, very tiny back then. And then sometimes when they were, you know, uploaded into the digital archives, they were blurry. So they're hard to read, but I did find some stuff. This one said, quote, The constitutional period of service for which this distinguished patriot and soldier was elected governor of Kentucky expired on the 5th instant. We learn that on the afternoon of the same day, he took his departure from Frankfurt for his residence in Lincoln County. He retires with the sincere affection and respect of his fellow citizens. How rich the reward of a faithful public servant. I couldn't help but notice that under that paragraph about him leaving office, there was one about the incoming governor, George Madison. He had some sort of mysterious illness that kept him from taking office. And so they sent him off to Blue Lick Springs for some healing spring water. And it fixed him right up. He was able to come back to Frankfurt and perform his duties as governor. You gotta love that magic Kentucky spring water. Shelby was a founding member of the Kentucky Bible Society, and in 1816, he became vice president of the New American Bible Society. He built a small non-denominational church on his estate. He became the first president of the Kentucky Agricultural Society in 1818, and the following year, chairman of the first board of trustees of Center College. Lots of firsts for this guy, I'll tell you. He just couldn't quit politics completely. In 1818, he tagged along with Andrew Jackson to negotiate the Jackson Purchase. And that was really his last big political moment. Um, because in 1820, he had a stroke that left his right arm and leg paralyzed. And on July 18th, 1826, he died of apoplexy. The Kentucky Gazette read, The Venerable Isaac Shelby another distinguished revolutionary patriot and statesman, is gone. He died at his residence in Lincoln County on the 18th. Colonel Shelby was the first governor of Kentucky and was called a second time to that office. He acted a conspicuous part in the Battle of Kings Mountain during the American Revolution, as well as in the Battle of the Thames in Upper Canada in the last war and whilst he was the governor of Kentucky. His name will descend to posterity as one of the worthies of Kentucky. When he died, he left all of his slaves to his children. He was buried on the estate. A monument was built over his grave the following year. And in 1952, the family gave the cemetery to the state government, and it became the Isaac Shelby Cemetery State Historic Site. You can visit the Isaac Shelby Cemetery State Historic Site. It is in what's now called Junction City, Kentucky. And I pulled up the website here and I'll just read you the description. Visit the smallest park in the park system where the half acre burial grounds of the Shelby family sits amid the peaceful countryside of Lincoln County. 
The stonewalled cemetery contains the monument and resting place of Kentucky's first and fifth governor, Isaac Shelby, along with the 22 graves of his wife and family. They rest in what Shelby once called the most beautiful land he had ever seen when first visiting Kentucky as a surveyor of the region in 1775. It is indeed a photo-worthy spot. Before leaving the area, he cleared cane, planted corn, and improved the grounds so that he could secure his claim to it. Records indicate that the 1,400 acres were officially granted to him in 1780, and his home, Traveler's Rest, was completed in 1786. Upon his death, Shelby was buried in the cemetery of his estate. The historic home was destroyed by fire in 1906, but the original detached brick kitchen still stands on private property and can be seen from a distance while visiting the site. Today, the Isaac Shelby Cemetery is listed on the National Register of Historic Places, and the park grounds are open all year, so you can go see it whenever you want. Thank you for listening to another episode. I do get a little out of my element anytime I have to talk about military history. So if I need to make a correction, or if you just want to talk about the episode or a topic for a future episode, send an email to kyhistoryhaunts at gmail.com. Connect with me on Instagram at kyhistoryhaunts. You can search on Facebook, Kentucky History and Haunts, and we also have a Facebook group, Kentucky History and Haunts, and more. Thank you for listening, and until next time.